designing for the unhappy case is, is quite important in building in building trust in these products because when something goes right, nobody notices. And when something goes wrong, they pay really close attention. Early adopters of that reduced their manual coding interventions by like 60%. And we had you know top performing customers are saving a week of work every month, depending on how many documents they're processing. Hi everyone, this is Alex Petrus and you are listening to the Applied AI Pod, real AI conversations with real people. Just in time for a holiday special on scalable reliance on AI for e-invoicing and AI principles. As we all go through our year-end invoicing and prep for next year, let's check out how it's done at scale by Tech Unicorn Trade Shift and how they use AI to automate payments as one of the largest e-invoicing providers out there. We get to hear it from their very own principal product manager, Lloyd Humphreys. Happy listening, everyone. This episode is brought to you by BAI, Europe's AI pre-accelerator. Rewatch this year's AI startups demo and pitch at www.crowdcast.io slash e slash BAI 2021. TradeShift, the company uh, you, you serve, is the leader in invoicing and accounts payable automation. And there is a recent news about an AI technology that you guys use called uh, ADA, a next-level artificial intelligence and machine learning layer embedded on the TradeShift platform. And I was really curious to, to learn more about um, what's ADA's performance against person-led processes. How is it looking? What are the good stories to share or metrics? And uh, how uh, has it been to deliver ADA to the uh, companies you work for? And um, what does it have under, under the hood? For sure. Um, ADA is more like a, a collection of uh, different products, basically. And we, we present it back to the market and to our customers as, as one, one thing across everything. And we basically have one, one team internally that, that maintains the whole thing. So um, we have a, a couple of interesting sort of uh, forks to ADA, things that it does. Um, it's anything from account level suggestions, like simple suggestions for the platform. That's that's an API that we expose that that anyone can use. You basically send it some features and an outcome, and the next time you can send it some features and request an outcome. Um, we've seen some really cool things built on top of that. Um, one of our one of our app partners has built something on that where basically they send in the the weight of a package and the size of a package, um, and then depending on how their customers that are also on the on the platform have uh, configured their logistics providers they can suggest the most appropriate logistics provider for that and you know that's that's not something that we would have done in a in a million years we're not uh, we're not sort of uh, focused on logistics necessarily um, but they they did that and they had it up and running in in no time because of this api that we made available which is pretty neat um, and so we try and keep things generic from that point of view and then we build our own products too, where we see that there are specific opportunities for us to improve. So um, the one that uh, we talked about uh, the most in the, in the media has been ADA coding. Um, coding is essentially a method that companies use to categorize spend. So when you fill out an expense report, for example, you're asked to add a cost center or maybe a, a GL account number, if you know what those are. And those are things that people generally don't really know if they don't do it very often. Um, we basically try and make good guesses as to what they should be based on how documents have been coded before. Um, and this is probably our, our sort of crown jewel um, model, our crown jewel product. 
Um, and this is the one that we have where we have uh, various levels of uh, configurability and uh, trying to put that in front of customers in the way where they feel the most comfortable adopting it, which uh, I'm sure we can talk a, a little bit about later. Um, but that, that performs really well. I think early adopters of that reduced their manual coding interventions by like 60%. And we had you know top performing customers are saving a week of work every month, depending on how many wow, documents they're processing. Yeah, Good exactly. Numbers. It's yeah. uh, it's it's pretty impressive, I think. Um, we have had uh, customers who are able to get this really highly automated. I think they're outliers in in the way that this works. So it's not a number that we that we quote very often. Um, but if you have very simple coding setups and very consistent invoices, then obviously the the machine learning is capable of doing better. Um, and we've had we've had them be able to automate, you know, up to up to ninety percent of these documents. No, that's definitely not <laughs> definitely not the norm, and that's why we don't we don't talk about that so much. But you know, the average is is about sixty percent, which I think is is pretty great. Key metrics, key metrics. So, from a project perspective, how what's the difference between a regular software development project team and an AI ML project team, for example? So, looking at things internally and the workings at TradeShift or your experience so far, and then we can go further to to the external world and how this impacts and shapes a customer experience and thinking customer backwards? I think internally, um, we've worked on things uh, from like a project perspective, where perhaps there's uh, the expectation, you know, the projects are a mean to an end, um, a project perhaps as an output. Uh, but we've also worked on things as a, as a product team where perhaps the, the expectation is that the, the product produces an outcome. Um, and I think... Every time we've approached something in a project manner, um, that has typically been a, a bit more difficult and a bit more of a mess. I think, in general, projects tend to span many teams internally. You try and pull everybody in. They, they trend towards being a bit more consensus-driven and uh, more highly coordinated. And I'm not sure that the, the sort of output-driven uh, desire of a project is, is very good for experimenting when it comes to, to building AI products. You know, it can lock. It tends to lock you into an objective that might be too hard to achieve, or you might end up realizing is two or three different uh, outcomes that you want to get out of a out of a, an AI product. So I think it's good. You know, from a project perspective, you can take some good things from that, and you can say it's good to pull in cross product input, but it's uh, and but perhaps not cross product decision making, if that makes sense. Um, it's hard to be consensus driven. And I think that from a product perspective, you get to be a bit more opinionated and a, a long lived product team is, is sort of where we've found the most, uh, the most success. Um, from a product perspective, because we're one, we're one centralized product team today. And I think that has its pros and its cons. Um, but one of the pros is that we, we don't tend to start these projects unless we see a clear need and a clear return on investment for, for starting them. Um, there's not, there's not a lot of broad and I wouldn't say random, but uh, mis you know, undirected uh, experimentation. So we're, we're lucky to have a pretty pretty standardized product uh, with TradeShift. Like I, I think I, my team would laugh at me saying that our data is pretty consistent and good, uh, but I think it is. And you know, we do have some pretty clear places where there is a human in the loop doing something completely boring, and they'd rather be doing something else. And it's it's a good opportunity for for Ada to get in the mix and. Uh, and, and help improve that. And we succeed when we approach these things as products. You know, they're, they're opinionated, 
they're not necessarily there to make everybody happy. They're there to have a, a, an interesting take on on what the future should look like with with a product like this. Like TradeShift operates in a in a pretty uh, traditional software environment. Um, lots of our competitors are sort of moving from on-premise solutions to cloud now, and we've been cloud native the the whole time. Um, so you know, I, I think being able to use some of the the work that we do from the the AI team's perspective. It's, it's not necessarily just solving a need, but it's also trying to craft a path towards you know, what, what should this process look like in 10 years? When you might not be there from an organizational perspective with your data yet, with your organization structure, with your trust in, in these kinds of automation tools yet. But you know, we're, we're here and we're ready when you are ready to make that transition. And we're sort of trying to lead the way and, and, and set what that future should look like. That's wonderful. And um, when you say, for example, you never start a project without uh, discovering the business need, um, can you maybe share a bit from this? Like, do you have, how, how does it look uh, when you choose the, the problem to work on? Or how do you prioritize it uh, to choose what to work on? And yeah, the path to, to starting the, the, the internal uh, project. Maybe I'll take the the, uh, the coding product as, a, as an example here. So if I can talk a bit about how, how we started that, for example, like coding is a pretty traditional um, categorical outcome problem, right? Like there is a list of potential outcomes that can be applied to any given line on a document, and it's highly, highly correlated to the content that, it's on, that is on that document. And this was the first thing that we built where we, instead of building something abstract, like um, the suggestion service that I talked about earlier, we wanted to build something that was a complete end-to-end product that we put in front of the customer. Now, we we chose to approach this one because it, it's such an, well, at least from my perspective at the time, it was a really obvious place for us to start where we could make a difference and we could differentiate ourselves um, from from our competition and make a difference from the customer's uh, point of view. So in that, I think the way that we approach that as a team is how do we reduce the amount of time that people are spending doing this process? And from a perspective of uh, you know AI being a tool in the toolbox and not the tool in the toolbox, what are the ways that we can uh, build build an interesting product that customers are comfortable with? And throughout the whole life cycle of building this, we have worked on iterations of this for two and a half years. Um, we've realized that the majority of what we're building is uh, is actually making customers more comfortable um, with with the solution uh, and and trusting it rather than actually making it that much better, making it more easy to understand what's happening and making it easy to control, setting some boundaries. So when we when we start a project like this as a team, we we think and, and we try and enforce at least that AI is just a tool in the toolbox. And as we've developed this over the years, we have ended up building things around uh, like a rule engine, very deterministic outcomes. But we built that in a way where it plays really nicely with the machine learning models that we've built. Um, so rules can go first. Rules can set boundaries. Uh, for where the machine learning uh, should be and should not be applied. And we put that control directly in the hands of the customers. And then we also build visualizations in the product that basically allow 
customers to um, to model, you know, here's what happened over the last 90 days. And if that remains consistent, here you can modify your um, confidence threshold within the product and, and get a different outcome over the next 90 days. So we might be more aggressive or less aggressive, or rather more aggressive and less con- uh, more conservative uh, when we make suggestions within the UI, um, which for different customers, the, what we've realized basically is there's different maturity across the whole industry in terms of what people are willing to try and what people are willing to, to give up to a machine learning process. And we want to enable there to essentially be a bit of a ladder. So if you want to just dip a toe in with rules and abstracting away some of this manual work to an entirely deterministic outcome, you can. And once you're comfortable with that, we can introduce very low levels of machine learning intervention. And once you're comfortable with that, we can ramp that up as the model gets more and more confident. And of course, it's never going to be 100% correct. And I think I repeat that in every single meeting that I have with a customer. I want them to be very aware that it's never 100% correct. But there's a trade-off to be had here. And we've tried to build tools and visualizations around that too, where we say, you know, you can put in a, a random cost, whatever you think it makes sense, whether it's in minutes, dollars, euros, like what do you think the cost of getting this right is as a person? What do you think the cost of getting this wrong is uh, in terms of having to reprocess the document or redo this work? And from there, we can calculate based on our error rates and you know projected uh, positive rates um, how much how much savings how many savings you're going to make on this on rolling this out over time and there's always a sweet spot you know the manual work never goes away but as we were talking about earlier we have some top performing customers that have tuned this to the point where they have saved an entire week's worth of work every month it's a good perspective and uh, you know while you were describing us you know how you, how you build this and how you collaborate with the clients and how you communicate and educate them because you know, the, the education is really important it doesn't solve everything so you have to watch out for the metrics mm-hmm. uh, actually thought of a question that actually may make or break um, the AI or ml strategy and the question is how much data is needed for it for doing AI or machine learning mm. on, on your project? How do you um, assess that? How do you estimate that? Or what do you take into consideration to, to know how much data is needed? Absolutely. That is the, the golden question. And one of the reasons that we actually ended up building a rule engine is so that we could bootstrap this a little bit. Um, we could basically allow customers to, to fill in the gaps very early on and they could get automation or time to value on automation very quickly. Um, it really depends uh, setup to setup how many different categories uh, you have for coding and how many different uh, values those categories can have. Um, and then also the diversity of the products that you purchase. So uh, the top performing uh, customer um, was in the logistics space and they had very consistent documents that they were processing and a, a very simple coding structure. So, you know, obviously it warms up to something like that quite quickly. Um, and some of us, we have some uh, consumer packaged good companies globally, different languages, different countries, the whole deal. Um, they, they struggle and they take a lot longer to come up to speed. So I would generally say we need, you know, 20, 30 different samples for, for a, a coding value before we can even begin to create good outcomes. 
Um, but we try and fill in the gaps there and allow people to make the problem simpler for the machine learning um, by by creating rules around it and by creating boundaries around it. Um, so yeah, it's it, that is a very tricky uh, that is a very tricky problem. And again, we we try and build these these visualizations into the product so that people can understand what's going on um, in a way. They can basically benchmark the, the machine learning against a, a human operator, and they can also see what's happened over the last the last ninety days. So we try and window it to ninety days, so that we're not uh, we're only taking a look at the most recent data. Um, it's a it is a tricky problem, and I think we I don't think that we've solved it, and I don't think that we'll ever solve it. But we we do try and mitigate it by letting people fill in the gaps, being as transparent as we can about what we think is going to happen based on what we've seen. And you know there there is definitely a, a point where it makes sense to turn Ada on for this coding problem, um, especially. But there are also points where we we do a, a review with the customer and we say oh, we don't think that you're quite ready for this yet, or we don't think that you're ready to automate. But we can fill in, uh, we can pre-fill things, and maybe you're you're comfortable with that only. So we call that assisted coding. Um, so we we just really want to set ourselves up to to succeed from a from a customer's point of view. Because I think everything from a customer's point of view fails when the expectations don't match the delivered product. So if they get started early on rules, which is nothing to do with machine learning, but we we get them started and being comfortable with the automation, and then we ask them to enable assisted coding, which uh, sets the expectation that we're here to help, but we're not setting the expectation that it's going to be perfect or correct. You know, where it's a, it's merely a suggestion, take it or leave it, change it, no problem. Um, and then we set a very high barrier for anything automation related because we're in the finance space and th there isn't much room for error when it comes to correctly tagging these documents and, and paying your suppliers and you, you're managing your supply chain. Definitely. And uh, it's a wonderful step-by-step -step, uh, process, uh, you know, taking them from one stage to another and ensuring everything is mature at that step and then uh, trying one more step. Uh, have you ever yeah. had uh, like challenges from a legal and ethics perspective, for example, to capture the data needed or to synchronize um, your data strategy with the with the business strategy the client had, or any challenge whatsoever that was related to data or dependencies or risks risks in respect to 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 the market you served. Um. So we segment our models basically into individual level models, which are entirely localized to a, an individual, uh, tenant level models, which are localized to a specific company's branch. So it's not even uh, it's not even the whole company. It's it's just a specific branch for that company. They tend to be within a single region um, or country, and then we have network level um, network level models, and the network level models are pretty rare. Um, these are very generic things where we um, basically train a model based on, um, let's say, product information. So we can say we can categorize all of these products based on how everybody else categorizes them against uh, a UNS PSC standard. Um, and then everything else that we might have any sort of ethical concerns about or that we might have any um, concerns about data privacy, like we really don't want things to be leaking uh, based on a, a machine learning suggestion. So we do uh, purely tenant level or individual level models for those things. And we try and be really careful about that. 
Um, and with the, the API tool that we built, it's, it's, uh, always tenant locked. So as a third party developer, you would not actually be capable of building a network level model because we, we, it's a very difficult to control what a, what a third party is doing with that. And we want to make sure that everything that we put out there is, is trustworthy. Um, and you had a, you had another question there, but I, I didn't quite catch it. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, it was about the dependencies or the mismatch between the data strategy and the business strategy. If you ever had yeah uh, troubles yeah we we've definitely had a couple of troubles there um tradeshift quite often operates as an interchange between different systems so you might be integrating your resource planning system with tradeshift so that tradeshift can manage the document exchange in a standardized way between your company and your supply chain and um this can be pretty great because in different countries you might have different erp systems the the resource planning systems and in different countries, you have different legal requirements in terms of accepting and processing invoices. And we standardize all of that. Now, where, where this can break down sometimes is um, where the customer is willing to spend to get these invoices into TradeShift. So um, essentially what happens a lot of the time is uh, they're working with a scanning provider that scans paper invoices into uh, our digital format. And if they take header level information, which we say is like uh, the document number, the total, any taxes, who sent it. You know, these are the sort of top level information on an invoice. Um, quite often, they're not willing to pay to also transcribe the line level data on this invoice. Um, so we we do run into some problems where uh, customers are integrating, you know, the bare minimum that they can in terms of processing these documents, and then we are unable to use uh, something like Ada coding to enrich that document after the fact. And I think this is a this is a pretty interesting um, thing that TradeShift is is good at, in that we look at a problem like that and we take a step back and we think how how can we change our business and how can we change the way that we engage with our customers to eliminate this problem or to mitigate this problem, and from here we build um, we build tools like uh, buyer source data, which is essentially allowing the buyer to upload the whole history of their data into our system and share it with their suppliers if they'd like to. And the reason that we do something like that is to encourage the suppliers to join TradeShift instead of sending paper invoices um, and uh, and send a, a digital copy themselves. And this ups the quality bar by a lot. And something that we're doing at the moment from a, a, the machine learning team's perspective is basically trying to map companies that we're attempting to onboard um, to public or commercial data sets for, for companies um, it, so that we can better onboard these companies. It's really important to us that we get companies transacting in a digital fashion as quickly as possible so that we don't have to deal with uh, all of this. And I think companies maybe uh, pinch the penny, spend a pound on some of these things. Like you're going to spend a lot of money on a, a system like TradeShift to automate this process. And then you're going to put low quality data into it. And we're not going to be able to automate as much for you. So I think that's definitely somewhere where we we can run into problems. But then, you know, it's just another opportunity for us because I'm also pretty confident that we can solve those problems through, you know, completely different means where, um, you know, we don't have to rely on scanning providers, for example. Yeah, because you can run into all sorts of data troubles, like you can have bad data, you can do bad data collection or, yeah, no matter 
what your promises would be for the ideal case or for other clients where you succeed, you may run with clients where, for example, their data quality might be might be challenging. So um, absolutely, it's interesting. That's exactly what we we get at when you know the customers customer feels like they failed when the expectations don't match what they what they were delivered. So, yeah, definitely absolutely. important. So happy to you you, you <laughs> definitely work at the at this level as well. Uh, is Agile a good solution to deliver on AI or ML projects or have you noticed the difference or have you adjusted um, how you use Agile? I So for what it's worth, I don't think I'm like the, the perfect Agile practitioner. I think <laughs> <laughs> we, we run a, a happy team and I think we're productive and that's what matters to me. Yeah, um, having productive are good KPIs. If you deliver, if everything <laughs> was client is satisfied, happy, you push up the boundaries of innovation. Yeah, it's exactly. good. Um, but you know, we do we do operate within this sort of uh, you know scaled agile kind of framework. We do uh, sort of quarterly planning kind of thing across the organization so that we can all keep in sync. But in general, it's pretty it's pretty loose. It's it's directional rather than uh, committed. Um, I do think that like today we have a, a combined data and data products team. So we're a pretty big team and we're responsible for all of our data products, uh, including Ada. So we get a lot of leeway in terms of how we want to spend our time. Um, but I think in a, in a more traditional setup, we have a, a machine learning kind of project team. Um, I think it leaves little room for experimentation unless you budget for it which I think is a little unfair to the, to the teams. And, uh, you know, Ron made a point on your last podcast about organizations who don't staff these projects correctly for the long term. You know, he said something like, um, we, we took these data scientists and we, these data engineers and we put them onto another project now. And, you know, that can, that can really get in the way of a, a really iterative uh, mindset. And that's why we like to think of our whole AI offering as a series of products. You know, they're all maintained by one product team. It's, uh, you know, we run into problems where that can be overly centralized, but I think long-lived product teams who work well together get to be opportunistic and it forces us to keep things simple. So by doing things like this, we don't have the brain space to make something 10 times more complicated for a marginal improvement. You know, the, re the return on investment isn't there when we have to maintain everything else. So you don't end up polishing for too long. I, I really like that. And I think by doing it like this, the whole team is on the same page about that outcome and what they're what we're going for. The team is there to impact the the whole company and the whole product, not just the the specific thing that they've been assigned to right now. Where is the maximal bang for the buck that we can that we can get? So that's one of the pros of that, I think. Yeah, definitely an aligned team and. A growth mindset instead of um, you know sticking to to uh, a methodology word by word. I think uh, it's a winning formula. For sure, I think you know ideal world, hire smart people that you trust, give them good context, clear boundaries, leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's that's the ideal world. Uh, you come from a background where you've done some UX. Uh, how much does UX matter in e-invoicing and ML and data projects? Yeah, I spent the, the first half of my career as a, a digital product designer. It's actually how I ended up at TradeShift. Um, and, you know, for the last, the second half of my career, basically, I've been working uh, in product management here. 
um, and the last three or so in, in data and ML. Um, I think in e-invoicing in general, it's, it's really important. A lot of these traditional systems, these on-premise systems, you wouldn't believe how difficult they are to use. Um, and they're not very accessible at all. Now, I think somewhere where uh, w there's room for improvement uh, on the trade shift side is definitely uh, in terms of like the, the power user flow. Um, but for in general, and in terms of being more accessible, I think we're, we're way up there. Um, it's much simpler to get started, much easier to understand what's going on. Not a lot of jargon. It's presented to you in a really clear way. Um, and I think when we translate that through to ADA and to our machine learning products, um, it's been very valuable um, that some of the sort of empathy work that you do as a UX designer to understand that you are not even close to the end user. And maybe even the person that you are talking to and sold this product to and configures and owns the, the operation of the, the trade shift product from the customer side is also not the end user. Um, and they have their own opinions and perspectives on what they'd like to achieve, but the end users um, and might, have, uh, might have different approaches. So when we spend, oh, what I realized pretty quickly is that we were spending a lot of time talking to these people, convincing them that uh, this machine learning uh, tooling was interesting and useful to them. Uh, but then when they would enable it, uh, it would get to their end users who would now have this thing in front of them that they didn't understand. And, you know, quite, quite rightly, they probably thought that was going to uh, replace their jobs. Uh, and that's not the intention. Um, I, like I've said, and like I tell the customers, the, this is not a process that's ever going away 100%. Um, you always need people uh, to do this. And the people that are doing this find it boring and would rather be doing something more useful and value generating instead. Um, so I think something that we've taken away from that uh, is definitely how do we how do we present, or something I've taken away from that with a design background at least, is how do you present this stuff back to the user in a way where they feel comfortable and understand exactly what happened? It needs to be auditable. You need to be able to trace it back. It's not deterministic, and you need to make that clear and uh, make it obvious so that they can understand how, how we got here uh, and sort of uh, untangle it if something goes wrong. Uh, so that, yeah, the, Designing for the unhappy case is, is quite important in building in building trust in these products because when something goes right, nobody notices. And when something goes wrong, they pay really close attention. And I, I think we spend a lot of time making sure that when something goes wrong, it's easy to understand why um, and, it, and it kind of explains itself. We, um, we have a product called Line Linker. It basically, um, when you send an order out and you receive an invoice back, uh, we try and link the lines across those documents together because the references are often lost as we do the interchange between different systems. Um, and something funny that uh, we, we noticed with this is basically that model performs so well that we rarely, very rarely put a linking task in front of a customer, which leads them to believe that the machine learning works really poorly because they only ever see tasks where it really, really messed it up. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's been a fun one to try and design around. Uh, and uh, do you like in uh, bad, bad context, do you show the model confidence? Uh, do you display anything that comes from the ML side or? Do you just wrap it up in uh, layman um, we terms? We try and wrap it up in layman terms. So in the line linker example, we basically provide three outcomes uh, that are, are categories that we put back into the product. 
we say this is a high confidence match, we say this is a low confidence match, or we we refuse to put a match at all. Um, and basically, we we try and say a high confidence match should very rarely be wrong, maybe you know zero point one percent of the time. Um, whereas a low confidence match, I think we have a threshold of maybe three percent of the time it's allowed to be wrong, um, and beyond that, we we won't make a suggestion at all. So we try and we try and present that back to the customer in a way that makes them feel like we're being very judicious in in making these matches. Um, I think something that we need to improve on is the sort of overall performance metric for this. It's very transactional. So you look at one document, you see the outcome for the document, you move on to the next document, you see the outcome for that document. And I think it would be good if we could put this data in front of everybody about how it performs. Because today we have these metrics, we talk to the, the, the customer operator of the software about these metrics, and they might be happy. But the end users might not actually see that. They might not even be familiar with the problem that we're trying to solve. They get an invoice in front of them. They see that it's linked to an order. They know they have to deal with the invoice, but they don't necessarily understand where the problem has been introduced here and how we solve it. So I think we need to be more explicit about the kind of value that this uh, model and the, the product in general is, is giving back to the individual user. One problem that definitely can be encountered across industries, especially where we use um, AI technologies uh, in our products, because you, you have this this problem you know being transactional and bringing more uh calibrating the trust throughout the product experience is something that it's uh it's seen in any project uh either if you use uh, natural language processing computer vision machine learning uh, i think across the ai technology use cases stack we can see this problem and Perhaps the the customer adoption and expectations being clarified, uh, it's a good uh, stepstone, and we we can build on this. We can optimize for understanding. We can calibrate trust, um, and uh, we can identify what goes into the user trust. Because uh, one thing I've been thinking and trying to build a, a methodology for is um, how do you define a trust score for AI or or ML projects, for example, in your product, mm, how brilliant. would you define the trust score? How, how would you know how to identify and to um, spot the threshold where you can tell, hey, we have this much until we can tell that half of our customers trust our, um, our technology? Because it's not only the adoption, it's also throughout the product experience. Each touch point, you can see how you calibrate the trust, how you optimize, how well they understand. Uh, how you manage to influence your user decisions and, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. It's throughout the product experience. So I think we are just um, uh, seeing the tip, uh, tip of the iceberg and definitely uh, a more natural flow um, is going to be built in the next uh, coming years and we are here to build it. Um, yeah. For sure. I think that's a really cool idea. I, uh, I had not thought about it uh, in terms of quantifying it before. I think it would, f from our perspective, we'd probably want to build some sort of metric that was based on our understanding of the quality of data coming in, our understanding of the customer's specific false positive rate, and then maybe some combination of you know CSAT or NPS, something to capture the more uh, qualitative side of things. But uh, no, I hadn't thought about that before, and I think it's a it's an interesting idea. Yeah, for sure. definitely. 
um, want to brainstorm more on it as we develop more AI projects, <laughs> definitely. Um, For sure. So you mentioned that you believe AI is a tool in a toolbox, which is wonderful. Uh, because it's not the only tool and uh, it shouldn't be the only tool, but it's a critical one because uh, it has a defined impact on metrics. It has a return on investment. Um, but let's try to look a bit at the perspective on how can projects get derailed? Uh, how do we usually fail? Um, yeah, what's, what's the thing that we should For be sure. watching out uh, when we deal with uh, ML projects, data projects, uh, and especially in this um, very sensitive combination of running for clients that deliver to end customers. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to give yourself space to fail in these uh, when you're setting something like this up. Um, I, I mean, if the customer's expectation doesn't match what you're capable of delivering, um, then, then you're definitely going to fail. But you can at least frame things in a way where, at different stages of the product and uh, project, and different stages of their onboarding and lifecycle and maturity flow as they use your product, um, there are different levels of failure that are acceptable. You know, a, a customer that's gone live in the last three months would probably be more tolerant to Ada being incorrect about things than a customer who's been live for three years. So I think it's important to, to frame that and make sure that the customer is both aware of that when you discuss things with them, but also aware of that in the product regular updates uh, we, we have a dashboard in our product that basically it's called the automation dashboard you can basically go there and see anything that ada is doing and get an overview of how it did anything over the last 90 days um but i think especially when we start this with with new customers i think people have very high and unrealistic expectations or perhaps not even unrealistic they're, they're very realistic they're just applied in different contexts like i don't think anything on trade shift is going to beat a starcraft 2 grandmaster but uh, you know we, we can really solve some some business problems and if we can frame those uh, correctly then then I think we set ourselves up to succeed um, I think that that is that is where things fail because I think if you you, you can get into a really sour uh, discussion with people where even if they're getting you know 20 percent automation rates that is better than nothing but you can get into this situation where, they haven't understood what it did. They didn't feel comfortable with it doing it. They don't know what the downstream effects of a certain automation are. And if you don't make those things really clear as you're automating uh, things within, especially within an AP process, uh, an accounts payable process, um, I, I think you can get into this situation where they would they would rather turn it off entirely because then at least they can trust that everything else is an entirely deterministic outcome. Like they, they can get mad at the AP person who filled this out wrong, but they can't get mad at the machine learning model. They maybe get mad at me on a phone call. Wonderful. This is <laughs> not, not, not that often. <laughs> so, you know, framing the expectations is really important. And uh, I, I worked with a, I worked with a machine learning engineer who um, was, was really great at sort of helping me understand these and talking, talking, talking through some of these things in terms of like how they had set expectations uh, at, at some other company um and i i learned a lot from that yeah i i, I think this uh this is a good combination uh, to have definitely uh 
can you or do you have any you know epic fail to share like uh, not the recent one where facebook uh, um, locked themselves <laughs> out, out of the office by using their own uh, by dog fooding their products <laughs> but uh, say uh, a, a fail that was uh, funny after you fixed it it's uh, it's always dns right <laughs> <laughs> Um, I actually think the line linker one is the is the most funny. This this thing where we end up putting these tasks in front of people where it's completely wrong, um, because th that's in hindsight that's so obvious. But we were so happy with the performance of our model, and we were so laser focused on this metric that we had being really good that you know you, you sort of become blinded to the the unhappy case because you you consider it happening so rarely. But in a vacuum where that's all the customer actually sees is these unhappy cases because everything else performs so well, they get the perception over time that this thing actually performs really poorly. And when I, you know, this sort of clicked for me on a call where somebody was demoing it because I, I simply could not understand what this customer was talking about. And I was like, okay, can you, can you demo this to me? Can you, you know, walk me through what you're seeing here? And it just clicked like, oh, this is, this is all you ever see in this process. Is, is where this completely messed it up. <laughs> and uh, I'm, uh, I don't know, that was, that was my epic fail moment because, you know, a design background, I, I feel like I, I should have called that. You know, I feel like I should have, I yeah, like I have known. No, no, it's a good one. It's definitely a good one. Um, and to wrap it up, um, can you leave us with some AI product principles you follow when you build AI projects or aspects that you make sure that you always uh, follow with like the big line principles I don't know move fast or make mm -hmm. sure you collect the right data or what what's your guidance in uh, in as a AI product For sure. principle um, because we have such a, a centralized team running these projects I think we like to set things up in a way where they are easy to get into again and then we like to set things up in a way where they're easy to put down and trust that they're not gonna mess up so we are we're responsible for a whole bunch of uh, machine learning services and uh, other services that sort of uh, uh, provide context to those outcomes at, at TradeShift and we have very few issues with them and we, we make a very deliberate effort to not have to sort of jump between projects so when we're focused on something when it from a machine learning perspective you know, or a, a, a project that we're trying to attack, then we are solely focused on that. And we very rarely have to deal with with distractions. So I think to begin with, if, if, you, if you're setting up a team in the same model as we have, it's really important to limit distractions. I, I think that's important anyway, but especially when you're, when you're trying to experiment with or make room for experimentation, because no product organization or engineering organization is going to afford you the ability to to run some experiments when all of your services are on fire. So <laughs> we, we make sure that they're not. Um, I think uh, the more I mature into the role, uh, the more I start all the way at both ends. So um, we talk a lot more about the data that we have available to us you know, right at the beginning. What is the thing that we're capturing? How do we encourage teams to capture more? How do we make it easier for customers to get us more data? Um, how do we change you know, whole aspects of our business so that we're capturing more data to facilitate further automation down the line? Um, and then also, how do we 
how do we frame this and sell this in the end? Because I think, you know, machine learning, I, I think especially from a from a sales perspective, when we put this in front of customers, it sometimes gets framed as this magic wand. And I really, really do not want that. So I like to be a lot more prescriptive about what this thing does. Here's the documentation that I wrote. Do not deviate from it. Uh, <laughs> this is exactly how it works and exactly what we're able to promise. Um, so, you know, starting from both ends and sort of working our way back. So um, I really like this uh, this concept of writing the press release. You know, like this is what we built. This is what we achieved. And we work our way back to the middle based on our understanding of the data. Uh, and I like to do this with the team all the way from the beginning. It's important to start together um, so that everybody has that context. Do you do this before starting on the project or midway or at the end? Um, before in general, but it's like a, it's a sort of continuous process. You know, once you start, you discover new things, you want to talk to more people. Um, I just think it's important that it's not just me that's doing that. You know, I think it's important that, uh, if we're working with data from other teams within TradeShift, I don't want to be the one that sort of talks to them, writes some documentation. Here's what we need to do. Or here's a user story. I, I, I really dislike that. I would, I would much prefer that the team is independent and capable of doing those things themselves. And I, I push them to, to get out there and do that. Um, and same thing with talking to customers, same thing with, uh, maybe even meeting with analysts and getting some you know, feedback on, on how our products perform. I think it's really important that, that everybody is capable of doing a little bit of everything uh, in, this, in, a, in a team like this. Um, you know, every, everybody takes it. Absolutely. Trash, right? Yeah. No, no exceptions. No exceptions here. I love the mm -hmm. magic wand um, mention. I think magic wands uh, are indeed useful, but uh, in, uh, in films, Harry Potter <laughs> or cartoons, I think, uh, yeah, exactly. in real life, real world, yeah, we should keep the expectation at the real uh, level and uh, magic wands are mm. not uh, useful, especially having the context or the history of AI being um, exposed by media as a magic wand. It's not a magic wand, it's a tool in a toolbox, as you mentioned. It's useful, definitely, but uh, it does have some... Um, uh, prerequisites or aspects we need to control or uh, put it in a spotlight more. For sure. I, I think when, when people come to us and they're excited about these things, that's great. That's like a great opportunity to educate them and to capture them. And I think it's, it's important not to sort of, you know, make them feel small or make them feel like they haven't understood something. It's, you know, they're excited about a piece of technology. They have an idea. They just might have misunderstood how it can be applied. And a lot of the times um, what I've realized is they have, what they've really done is they've identified a problem that they think a computer can help with. And AI might not be the answer, but there usually is a pretty good problem that they've identified that people weren't aware of. So, you know, I, I try and think of it through that lens. Uh, they're not coming to me with an idea for an AI product. They're coming to me with a problem that they think a computer can help with, which uh, I, I don't think people... Uh, traditionally sort of think in that in that mentality sometimes <laughs> thank you so much lloyd so much uh, so much know-how uh, uncovered in this episode it's been a real pleasure and uh, we hope to catch it catch you up on uh, on another episode in conversation as well that would be fantastic thanks for having me that's all folks happy holidays and tune in to new applied ai pod episodes in 2022 exciting times to live in and bring your best goals and AI bets for the new year. 
Stay safe and enjoy the festivities. <laughs>